Let's turn again to the uh, book of Revelation, to the fifth chapter. A friend of mine asked me this past week, when are we going to get into the good part of Revelation? Uh, which he, uh, he meant, when will we get to the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the beasts and the great harlot and all of those good things? And I understand because those are the parts of Revelation that intrigue our interest and pique our curiosity. <clears throat> but uh, I'm sure you've seen that the first four chapters of the book of Revelation are filled with good things as well. This is not filler. This is not merely an opening exercise, which, as Howard Hendricks used to say, opens nothing and exercises no one. Uh, this is all part of the, uh, of the teaching of the book of Revelation. It's designed to prepare us for what comes after uh, chapter 5. As we saw in the first three chapters, the Lord writes letters to the churches in Asia Minor. The purpose of uh, which uh, letters is to describe authentic Christianity, the real thing, the kind of people that we are to be in any and all circumstances. There's a rare grace and beauty about reality. And uh, the Lord describes in those chapters, in those letters, what it means to be real. To speak the truth in, in love, to have purity, to, uh, to give witness to the truth, to rely in all things on the power of an indwelling Christ. Those are the things that make us real. I was sitting down there this morning looking at the flowers at the back of the platform here, and I always thought these plastic flowers in the middle were very attractive until I saw them in comparison to these, uh, these other flowers, and they look pretty shabby and, and dusty because these are the real things. There really is something very shabby about uh, a fake and forced Christianity. But uh, the real thing is, is a beautiful thing to see. And it's these chapters, these opening chapters, that describe that, uh, that reality to us. Then in chapter 4, there begins a new vision where John is taken up uh, into heaven and the chapters that follow, 14 of them until chapter 17, describe what, uh, what John saw in this, in this heavenly vision. His uh, attention was immediately arrested by a throne and someone seated upon the throne whom he recognized as the Lord himself. And around the throne are arrayed uh, angels and creatures of various type, which Steve tried to explain to you last week. There were the four living creatures, which seemed to represent uh, all of, of animate creation, animals and birds and humanity. And then there are the 24 elders, which, uh, which uh, Steve uh, interpreted as representatives of redeemed humanity. Now, uh, I have set my mind to this problem, and I have scoured through all of my scholarly tomes and uh, my reference works, and I have put uh, 20 years of Bible teaching and, uh, and experience in studying the Scriptures to this uh, question. And I have come to the conclusion that I don't have the foggiest idea who the 24 elders are. If Steve thinks they're representatives of redeemed humanity, that's okay with me. We'll uh, go with that until I can come up with something better. But uh, the, uh, the import of the vision is very clear. God is depicted as someone who is panic-proof. He's, he's not in a dither. He's not pacing the floor and wringing his hands and biting his fingernails. The uh, sea around him is a sea of glass. There are no waves in heaven. Everything is under control. And that likewise is preparation for what follows because in chapter 6 when the seals are broken and we begin to see the, the, uh, the terrible effects 
of uh, humanity being turned loose to uh, live as they please, we need to keep in mind who God is and who is in control of history after all and uh, go back to the one stable element in the universe when everything else is, is being shaken. Uh, John is doing here what, what uh, Isaiah does in Isaiah 6 and Jeremiah and Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1 and Ezekiel in the opening chapters of his book. Before he describes the great shaking of, of things and nations and institutions, he first gives us a picture of the God who cannot be shaken. And that's uh, comforting in times when we see our nation going to rack and ruin and we see families falling apart at an alarming rate and violence and, and crime assuming uh, uh, enormous proportions. And we wonder, does anybody have a clue? Does anybody know what's happening to the world? How do you stop this thing? I want to get off, but it's just good to know that God is, is, is in control. The world is not running out of control. Now in chapter 5, uh, the, uh, the scene continues. John looks again at the throne, and he sees in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. He sees uh, upon the palm or in the right hand of the one on the throne a book. As some translations translated, it could very well be a book. They had uh, books much like our uh, volumes today back in those days. But uh, more likely it was a scroll, a long scroll made out of papyrus. And what John observes that, uh, that arrests his attention is the fact that this scroll is written on, has writing on both sides. Now that's very unusual because they normally didn't write on the backside of scrolls. Uh, there's a very practical reason why they didn't. The uh, strips of papyrus on the back were laid vertically and when you tried to write, your pen would snag on the edges of the, uh, of the little pieces, little reeds that, from which they made paper. And it was very difficult to write. You'd splatter ink all over the place. But uh, in this case, the book is written on both sides. And uh, the point of this symbolism is that this is a comprehensive, complete statement of things. It includes everything you always wanted to know about the future. But uh, we're afraid to ask. Uh, there's nothing more to be added to it. When we come to the end of the seals, as the last seal is broken, uh, John says there was silence in heaven for a half hour. Some wag has uh, commented that that may be an indication that there are no women in heaven, but that's uh, <laughs> certainly not true. Uh, it's simply that the, uh, that, that the scroll came to an end and there's nothing more to be said. The last word on the subject has been said. So we can get on with things, you see. This is a comprehensive, exhaustive, complete statement of everything that God is going to bring about that leads to the consummation of, of history. Then John notes that uh, there are seven seals that seal the, uh, the scroll. And this was, according to culture, custom. Very often, legal documents were sealed with seven witnesses who each uh, affixed his own personal seal to the document. Now, the question is, what is this book? What are the contents of this book? It must be about the future because John was told when he was taken up into, into heaven, this book has to do with future things. He's told, I'll, and I will show you what is to come. Well, this is a book that any one of us would like to lay our hands on and have, as a matter of fact. This is a book that explains 
how to solve every problem that mankind has ever faced. This is a book that tells us how death and disease will be put away once for all. That's a problem that, uh, that preoccupies a, a large uh, percentage of our time and our thinking ability and money and manpower. Just think of the number of people who spend their lives uh, engaged in trying to stave off death. Physicians and people who make cosmetics and all sorts of, of people like that. Uh, death is something that preoccupies us and disease. Who can, uh, can solve uh, the problem of heart disease or cancer or all of these dread, terrible things that ravage the human race? Well, this book tells how that will be done. Who can solve the problem of war? A problem that uh, the UN has struggled with and the League of Nations before. No one has been able to really come to grips with that problem. What are the root causes of war? and How can we eradicate it? Well, this, this book tells, gives the answer to that, that problem. Every problem that you can imagine that has been, has been frustrating to the human race from the very beginning is solved in this book and all the steps that are necessary in history to bring about a consummation of, of history and, a, and a, a resolution of all those problems is found in the book. Now, if you or I could lay our hands on a book like that, it would be worth billions of dollars. It would immediately become famous overnight. We'd have more money than we knew what to do with. That's, uh, that's a book everyone is looking for. John sees it in the hand of, of the one on the throne. And then he saw a mighty angel, a strong angel, proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? In other words, who has the credentials to, uh, to look in the book and enact the decrees, work out the, uh, the history that's necessary to bring about a resolution of all these problems? Who's worthy to do that? When I was in the, in the service, I was uh, in charge of the Little League program on our base, and, and I had a hard time scheduling things because many times troops would be out in the field and, and fathers weren't available to, to help out with the program. So I remember going to the uh, uh, personnel office one day and just asking if they knew what was going to happen over the next six months, what, what units would be in the field, what, which would be in camp, because I had to schedule this thing. And, and uh, the lieutenant who was in charge came out, and, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't give you that information. That's, that's classified, and you're not cleared for that sort of information. You can't have it. And I said, well, how can I run my program if, if I can't uh, get this information? And he said, well, that's just the way it goes. You're not certified to get it. You can't get it. And there I was, unworthy. I couldn't look into the book. Now, this is the sort of problem that uh, the angel describes. Who's worthy to solve the problems that uh, have ravished the human race? And who is worthy to enact all the events in history that will bring about a, a, a consummation of, of, of history, human history? And uh, so the search begins. Emissaries are sent out to the ends of the earth to find someone who, who is certified, someone who's worthy. But in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. The phrase in heaven or on earth or on, under the earth is just an idiom for universality. They went every place, and they couldn't find anyone who was worthy to open the book. 
They went to the farthest planets and they looked under every rock and they went into caves and to the bottom of the ocean and uh, uh, looked uh, at every uh, particle of the universe and they couldn't find anyone who had the credentials to open the book and break these things about. They, they interviewed philosophers and psychologists and psychiatrists and preachers and educators and social scientists and leaders and educators and the shakers and movers and makers of our of our time and in the past and the future and there was simply no one worthy. No one could open the book. And John did what we would do. He broke down and wept. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And John thought history will grind on with man's suffering unrelieved, his despair unalleviated, alleviated it Things are going to be grim and tough from now on. There's no, there are no answers. And there are a lot of people like that in the world today who really have given up hope. They, they've given up on their marriages. They've given up on finding some purpose in life that really means anything. They've just given up. And that's where John is. But then in verse 5, one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John thinks, aha, it'll be some kingly, regal figure like a lion. And he must be a Jew because he's of the tribe of Judah. And he's of the Root of David, so he must be someone in the, in the long kingly line that sprang from David, someone like Hezekiah or Jehoshaphat, or Josiah, or some of these great giants in, in Judah's history who came on the scene and began to set things right. So there is uh, some hope. But when he turns to look, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Its throat was cut. Its uh, fleece was soaked with blood. It had been sacrificially slaughtered. That's uh, the term that John uses here. And uh, John would immediately think back to what he knew of sacrificial lambs, the uh, temple and the worship in the temple where uh, an Israelite would bring a Jew to the gate of the temple and place his hands on the head of the lamb and confess his sins, and then the lamb would be taken into the interior of the temple and, and his throat would be cut and it would be offered up on his behalf. So there was an exchange of guilt. The guilt of the worshiper was placed upon the lamb and the lamb's life was, was offered up. And then John would think of that, uh, that day when he, he was with John the Baptist, his teacher, and he saw Jesus coming through the crowd and John pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John would know who the Lamb was. This was the Lord Jesus who was sacrificially slaughtered. And then he is, the lamb is described here as standing in the center of the throne. In other words, the lamb was on the throne. The New American Standard uh, translation gives the impression that the lamb was standing between the throne and the first tier of, uh, of angelic beings. But uh, actually what John says is that the lamb was on the throne. It was, what he saw was like a double exposure. He saw 
the one who was on the throne, God, and he saw the lamb transposed against the image of, of God on the throne. In other words, this was not only the lamb of God, this was the lamb who was God. And then he saw that the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven in the book of Revelation is a, a number that signifies perfection or completeness. A horn is a picture of power and ability to, to get things done. And so this is a picture of perfect power, or we would say omnipotence. That's an attribute of, of God. Here's a, that's a, a ironic sort of arrangement, a lamb, a, a meek lamb, a slaughtered lamb who has all power. And seven eyes, seven again, the number of perfection, and eyes in, in this apocalyptic literature being symbolic of wisdom or insight or understanding or knowledge. So the lamb not only had all power, he knew everything. He was omniscient. And uh, this is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. It says in verse 7, He, the Lamb, came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll see later that these prayers are basically a question. Ask in chapter 6, how long, O Lord, how long before you're going to set things right? And these elders and creatures sing a new song in verse 9. A new song is simply a song that's made up for the occasion. It never had been sung before. When they uh, realized that the Lamb was the one who was going to take the book and begin to uh, work out the things in history that were necessary to bring about the end of, of all grief and death and disease and disorder, hurt and pain. They uh, wrote a song for the occasion. A few months back when we had our uh, Valentine uh, marriage enrichment seminar, Dave Foray sang a song to us that he had made up for his wedding. He, uh, he sang a song to Lissa as she walked down the aisle. Carolyn wanted me to do that when we were married, but I, I just couldn't quite pull it off. But... He did, and uh, he sang it to her, and he sang it to us. By the time he got around to us, it wasn't a new song. He had sung it before, but on the occasion of his wedding, it was brand new. And that's what, that's what John means by a new song. They, they made it up as they went along, sang it in unison. And this is the, uh, the lyrics are given to us in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tongue and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. There are really three things that uh, he says about the Lamb in this song. First, uh, a simple historic fact, you were slain. Sacrificially slaughtered. Fact deeply embedded in history that we can't eradicate that the Lord Jesus died on a cross. A lot of people didn't understand the significance of that act. There were people sitting around the cross who laughed and some scoffed and others were indifferent. Very few really understood what was going on. That was God hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. They, they wouldn't have known that by seeing the Lord Jesus hang on that cross. 
but uh, that's a fact. Paul in the book of Acts reminds us that it was God who purchased the church with his own blood. That's the fact. The interpretation of that fact is that with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the meaning of the cross. He bought us for himself, as Paul puts it. We are not our own. We're bought with a price. The uh, word that the uh, elders and, and uh, creatures use here for bought or purchased is a word that had a rich uh, cultural uh, significance. It, it was used for buying slaves out of the marketplace. It, it's based on the word for marketplace, the agora. And uh, behind this word is the idea of someone walking into the marketplace, buying a slave, and taking the slave home to serve him. The point that Scripture makes over and over again is that we are either the slaves of, of the enemy, Satan, or we're slaves of God. There isn't any middle ground. We, we live under a delusion, and we like to kid ourselves into thinking that we're free. We can do whatever we want. We can fly like a bird, but, but the facts are we are not free. As, as Bob Dylan puts it, you've got to serve somebody. Uh, Carolyn and I were frantically writing down the words to uh, one of his songs this morning, and I'm not sure I got it all right. But he says, You may be a preacher full of spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's lady making somebody care, but you've got to serve somebody. And that's, uh, that's the truth. It's revealed in Scripture. We're never really free. We're either subject to the God of this world or we're subject to God. Paul, back in uh, Ephesians, in describing the former state of, of the people in Ephesus, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its, its desires. You know, we think we're living for ourselves and doing our own thing, but we're really not. We're, we're subject to the God of this world. I've been teaching the Upper Room Discourse to the interns, and it, it struck me afresh this past week how much under Satan's control Judas was and Judas was totally unaware of it. Judas thought he was uh, feathering his own nest and looking out for himself. He had his hand in the till, you know, and, and he was trying to set himself up so he'd have a preferred place in the kingdom. And he was just running through life thinking that he was free and he was doing what he wanted to do. And the Lord reveals in the upper room that it was Satan who was at work victimizing Judas to accomplish his ends. Judas was not free. But you see, what the Lord has done is purchased us out of the old life. All the awfulness of the old life. The moods, the self-pity, the greed, the, our tendency to acquire things and to think that things will make us happy. The world sells us that line of goods all the time. You know, if you, Something that you'll, you spray on or roll on is going to make you, it's going to fulfill you, satisfy you. 
and uh, you have the right fragrance and some man will come into your life and sweep you off your feet and you'll be uh, happy forever after or something you write in is going to make a man out of you or if you buy a Brooks Brothers suit you'll you're going to succeed and you'll you'll feel like you're somebody and we just slavishly trot along and we believe it and the world goes on telling us you know a little sex on the side is all right nobody gets hurt or it's all right to lie and if you're going to get ahead in the world you're going to have to trample people a little bit that's all right everybody has to look out for themselves if you don't get your chips somebody else will get them so you grab first and we think we're going along because we chose to and what we don't realize is that we've just played right into satan's hands he's the liar and the murderer he's been doing it since the beginning of human history when he said to eve don't do it god's way You'll never be satisfied that way. I've got a better way. But you see, that's what the Lord has delivered us from. He took us out of that. He purchased us for himself. We're his now. We're his servants. And the result of that servanthood is described for us in verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Two things we are now and one thing we will be then. He says we are now a kingdom and we are priests. We're a kingdom, that is, we're a God-ruled people. We're people that are subject to him. And that sets us apart in the world. We may live in the kingdom of man, but we're really a part of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he inaugurated his kingdom with a uh, speech. You know, all uh, presidents and kings do that. They make a speech and they... They describe uh, their approach to the kingdom, their philosophy of history or whatever. And that's what Jesus did in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And he said things that just turned his world upside down. And it still does today. He said, uh, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and the world says, blessed are those who are strong and tough and self-dependent and adequate in themselves. But the Lord says, no, no. Blessed are those who are dependent upon God, who know that they were created to be filled only and satisfied only with God, who count on Him, who are strong because they believe Him and trust Him. And He said, blessed are the meek, those who don't defend themselves. And blessed are those who mourn, who are touched by the hurt and the pain around them. And blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. You see, that's what it means to be authentically Christian, to, to live that way, to be God's people in the world and display his character in the world. That's what it means to be a kingdom. When I first came here, I said some things that I know upset some people and I'm probably still living with the results of some of it. I pointed out that um, Christians tend to get preoccupied with a, a list of things that Christians don't do. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They don't dance. They don't gamble. They don't go to movies. They don't chew or what else, whatever, or go with girls that do. <laughs> and uh, these are the dirty dozen or the filthy five or whatever that, that are supposedly characterized Christians. Now, you know, it may be that there are Christian reasons for not doing any of those things. But those are not the marks, the unique marks 
of someone who is subject to God and his kingdom. The, the marks of God's people is that they are interested in others. They're, they're sensitive and tender to people. They care when other people hurt. They don't look out for themselves. They aren't full of self-pity. They don't sit around and moan and complain and cry about how tough they have it and how good other people have it. They're patient with people that are difficult to live with. They're loving to the un unlovely. They work at their marriages despite the difficulties there. They try to be fair in their, in their business dealings with people and honest and truthful. Those are the marks. And the Lord says that's why he purchased us out of the world. So we wouldn't be caught up by the world's line of thinking that always ends in destruction and hurt, ultimate doom. But rather be subject to God and display his character in the world. And then, secondly, he says we're priests. We are ruled by God and we're God's representatives. A priest, you know, is someone who mediates between God and man. He stands halfway between God and man. He represents man to God and God to man. This is not some special class of clergy. It's, it's everyone, everyone who's been ransomed, who's been bought out. We're priests. Priests are uh, preoccupied with spiritual things, you know. They, uh, they want to do one thing well, and that is represent God to man and represent man to God. To speak to people about God and speak to God about about man, to give witness and help and encouragement to people and to pray to God for people, to intercede on their behalf. And that's our task. You may be a contractor or an educator or a housewife or uh, almost anything, but the main priority, the main, the main focus of our life is our priestly ministry. We live in a world where people are really hurting. There are tremendous needs. And we need to focus on the things that will put us right in the center of God's redemptive program. Last week I was, uh, took a trip up to Atlanta just to get away from things. And uh, when I arrived uh, in that little town, there was no one there. I think only about 30 people live there the year round, and they just disappear. Uh, during the week into the woods, I suppose. But uh, I looked around for a while and just sort of enjoyed the solitude. And I went into a restaurant. It was noon and I was getting hungry. And there was a young lady in there who was, who with her husband owns the uh, the market and restaurant up there. I normally don't uh, pick up strange women in uh, markets and restaurants, but uh, there was no one else to talk to. And so we started chatting. And we started talking about spiritual things. And she told me she was, a, she was a Roman Catholic. She'd been trained in Roman Catholic schools, had gone to a, a Catholic university, actually quite well-read, very thoughtful uh, young person. And uh, she said, uh, you know, the priest never comes up here, and, and uh, I, I just have a, a real hunger for God, and I don't know how to cultivate it. She said, you know, we Roman Catholics are never taught to study the Bible. I don't know how to study the Bible. I don't even know how to get anything out of it. And uh, I was able to tell her about a study that I know that uh, uh, a man is leading up there now. 
And uh, she was glad to hear that. But what struck me as a result of that conversation is that wherever you go, you see people in, who are spiritually needy, who really are hungry and, and empty, hollow. And we're priests for God. We can speak a word in season, you see, to the one that's weary. I uh, think I mentioned some time ago in a, uh, an incident back when I was working with uh, college students. I was walking across the campus of uh, Foothill Junior College in the San Francisco Bay Area. And there was a young man sitting on a grassy knoll just staring out into space. And we struck up a conversation. I was waiting for someone who hadn't, uh, he was delayed. And so I struck up a conversation with this uh, young man, found out his name was Alan Hugel. He was in the aeronautics program there, planning to be a flyer. And we just chatted for a while, and, and I asked him if he had any interest in, in talking about spiritual things. And he said, you know, I was sitting here thinking that I need to make that decision to invite Christ into my life. And he told me a story. He had uh, just gotten back from Vietnam, and he had a squad leader who was a Southern Baptist uh, who had witnessed to him a number of times. And he had a mother and grandmother at home that had been praying for him for years. And his life had just collapsed around him, and he was just sitting there thinking that he needed to give his life to the Lord Jesus. And they're all over. They're all over. And we must not, therefore, be so preoccupied with feathering our own nest and making our own way through the, through the world that we fail to be what God has intended us to be, a kingdom of people ruled by God and living out his life and giving witness to those that are, that are needy, Christians and non-Christians. And then finally, he says, we will reign on the earth. Now, that's not true yet. Hebrews says that, uh, quoting Psalm 8, that man was intended to reign. It was God's uh, purpose in creating us to make us kings, to rule the universe. But because of the fall, we lost our authority over creation, and now we're subject to it. But uh, the writer of Hebrews picks up that idea and says, we, we see Jesus, who has been exalted. He's a reigning man. And one of these days... We're going to reign. We're going to be kings, not because we're anything special. Are there some innate quality that, uh, that, makes, that gives us that sort of authority, but simply because he loved us and purchased us out, and we believed it. We've aligned ourselves with him. And one day he's going to come back, and he's going to set everything up right, and we're going to share his triumph with him. And in the meantime, we're learning how to be kings. We're, we're princes, to some extent, learning how to be kings, like Prince Charles. We, uh, he's learning how to be a Marine and how to fly jets, and uh, every once in a while he falls off his horse, but uh, that's all right. He's learning, and you fall off every once in a while when you're learning, and we will as well. We won't always act in princely ways. We'll make fools of ourselves, and we'll fail, but we're learning, and uh, as the Lord reminds us in the parable of the talents, if we're faithful in a few things, he's going to make us faithful over much. We'll reign with him as kings. Now, that's a delightful prospect. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, it's unto that hope that we've been saved. That's a sure thing. It's coming up based on God's word and uh, the certainty of his promise. But in the meantime... We're to live subject to him 
in his kingdom, and we're to be priests for God. Now, that's something to uh, give praise for, and that's what the assembled angels and others do, beginning with verse 11. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000 they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Beginning from the throne and working out through this assembled multitude, there is a crescendo of worship and praise that rises. Ear-splitting song, giving worship, attributing power and wealth, wisdom, strength, glory, praise to the Lamb. Who's worthy? To do what he has done. No one. And so the uh, rightful response is to worship him. Then he says, I heard every created thing. The rocks and the trees, the waterfalls, the mountains, the stars. Everything breaks into praise. Singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures who started this song say amen to conclude it. And the elders fall down and worship. And we can do no better. There isn't anyone else in the world that's, that's worthy of our worship. No one has really solved the problems that plague us. Not our psychiatrist. Not the social scientists, the economists, the philosophers. As great as they may be, as learned as they may be. They haven't really solved any problems of any magnitude at all. There's only one who has, and that's the Lord Jesus. And he alone is worthy to be worshipped. If you've never worshipped him before, this is a good time to begin. As the Lord put it in his, uh, in his prayer, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The uh, angels and assorted beings in heaven don't have any question about the worth of the Lamb. They know reality. They see things as they really are, and they fall down and worship Him. How foolish it is of us to worship anything or anyone else. Now, in response, we, uh, we should worship, and we should sing the song that the angels sang. Will you take your bulletin out? And you'll note at the top a series of songs, which two of which are actually taken from this passage. Thou art worthy, and worthy is the Lamb. Let's sing them together in unison, uh, worshipfully. And uh, we'll, we'll just go from one song to the next. And let's uh, make this the application to our own hearts. <clears throat> 